Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. In the 1790s, James Gilray, a cartoonist, described a voluptuary under the horrors of digestion. There was a man, post-feast, bursting his breeches on the verge of apoplexy. He is surrounded by unpaid bills weighed down by overflowing chamber pots, empty wine bottles, and bottles of medicine purporting to be the cure for VD. Contemporary poet and critic Lee Hunt described him as a violator of his word, a libertine, over head and ears in debt, a disgrace, a despiser of domestic ties, the companion of demi-reps and gamblers, without a single claim on the gratitude of his country, nor the respect of posterity. This is George the Fourth. George was born at St. James's Palace on the 12th of August 1762 to George III, King of Great Britain and Ireland, and Elector of Hanover, later King of Hanover, and Charlotte, the Queen Consort. He soon, by birthright, became the Duke of Cornwall and Rothsey, and the Prince of Wales as heir apparent to the British throne. He was a talented student, speaking French, German, Italian, as well as his native English. He was brought up in a framework of the politics and personal morality of his parents, who were the essences of prudence and austerity. His early childhood was spent in near isolation at Kew Palace in Surrey, where his father imposed a strict educational regime. Despite this, and despite any transgressions being rigorously punished, the king was starting to see signs of duplicity in his young son. George would not grow into the mould set so meticulously by his parents. As a young man, he set up home at Carlton House on London's Pall Mall. He became wild and extravagant, smoking and drinking from an early age, with a dangerous predilection for extravagant spending. He was described as rather tall, with a figure that is though striking is not perfect. He is inclined to be too fat and look too much like a woman in men's clothes. His face is very handsome and is fond of dress to a tawdry degree. By 16 he was attempting to seduce his mother's lady-in-waiting. She would be one of a very long string of mistresses during George's life. He offered actress Mary Robinson £20,000 to be his mistress. She described him as outstandingly handsome and charming. It was impossible to forget the grace of his person, the irresistible sweetness of his smile, the tenderness of his melodious yet manly voice. In fact, Robinson had rejected George until she had caught her husband in bed with their maid. The affair ended when George sent a curt letter informing her that they were not to meet again. The real reason for the breakup was Robinson had threatened to publish George's highly charged love letters. £5,000 and a pension kept Robinson quiet. It would be one of many dramatic romantic episodes during his life. George would regularly pay mistresses in fine jewellery, often spending as much in hush money to their respective husbands. 
As his biographer described, he was like a bee roaming from flower to flower, sipping the honey, but never visiting the flower again. It was proving an expensive addiction. He didn't discriminate. He had affairs with commoners, singers, actresses, maids and matrons, producing more than a few illegitimate children in the process. According to Irish satirist Richard Sheridan, he was too much every lady's man to be the man of any lady. Despite more serious romances, this was ultimately remained true. George's relationship with his father deteriorated. What didn't help was his friendship with George's political nemesis, Charles Fox, a man equally averse to the King's lifestyle and moral compass. The louche, drunken Fox had made a career out of radically opposing the King and his politicians, and supporting revolution abroad. This antagonism of the King, George seemed to enjoy. When Fox strutted into the room wearing a uniform belonging to the American Patriots, George laughed and applauded. The pair would regularly gamble, drink and share mistresses. During one drunken night, George was actually arrested for drunken disorderly behaviour and had to be bailed by his own tailor. His cavalier, debauched lifestyle soon caught the interest of the rampant British press. After all, he was the future king. George would complain that every day it was almost certain that some unpleasant mention of him could be found in the newspapers. Coverage was almost entirely negative. The times were particularly scathing, writing, he is a man who at all times would prefer a girl and a bottle to politics and a sermon. His taste for gargantuan meals, heavy drinking, mistresses and gambling took their toll. First on his health. By 1797 George weighed 17 stone and was addicted to laudanum. The more immediate concern was his finances. His own treasurer described his death as beyond all kind of calculation whatever. To take an example, he received around £50,000 annually from Parliament around 6.5 million by today's money. He spent 30,000 per year just on his stables. He soon owed half a million pounds, largely in gambling debts. His own mistresses had to pawn their own jewels just to keep the bailiffs away. Nevertheless, George continued to spend. Being the Prince of Wales meant he had many avenues in which to turn. In 1784, George met Maria Fitzherbert, and became besotted. Maria initially rejected the prince. Upon hearing the news, George attempted to stab himself as a display of devotion. His maddening advances frightened her. George tore at his own hair and threatened to abandon crown and country. Maria refused to be his mistress and insisted upon marriage. George agreed. But there was a problem. The twice-widowed Maria was a Catholic. The act of settlement meant any heir who married a Catholic would be barred from the throne. Despite this, the pair married in secret in December 1785. 
The marriage was later considered void, as no consent was given by the monarch, which was necessary according to the Royal Marriages Act, signed in 1772 by the king himself, to prevent such ill-advised weddings taking place. The marriage was still a secret, although rumours were rife. George's allies in Parliament were forced to repeatedly lie in the Commons when quizzed about such rumours. The pair had ten children, all illegitimate. George would remain pathologically unfaithful, with the relationship sometimes turning violent. Maria once had to hide in her own house, while a drunken George searched for her with a drawn sword. In 1788, the king was struck down with what is thought to have been porphyria, precipitating the Regency crisis. He would chatter nonsensically and would be prone to streaks of violence, at least one of which was directed at George. Unable to carry out his royal duties, Parliament urgently set about trying to find a solution. Prominent Whig MP Charles Fox was of course keen to see the Prince of Wales, his buddy, installed as regent. The Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, claimed that he had no greater right to rule than any other Briton. Pitt was very concerned with the prospect of George becoming regent and the powers that would be given to him. It is very likely that George would engineer a change of leadership, placing his friend, the radical Whig, Charles Fox, in Pitt's position. The prospect of George ruling the country even temporarily frightened many in the halls of Westminster. George was known to spread intimate stories of his father. He would cruelly mimic the king to his friends around the clubs of London. He would even talk openly about potential coups. It was very clear that there was no majority of politicians who would be comfortable with George becoming the regent with full power. This sparked a constitutional crisis. However, it was short-lived. The king recovered by February 1789 and resumed full powers for now. George was back in financial woes by the mid-1790s. His avenues were closing. He owed at least £650,000 to creditors, around £78 million. Parliament had paid off his debts one too many times. The king had refused to bail out his son, calling it a shameful squandering of public money to gratify the passions of an ill-advised young man. Yet now the king had an idea. George's debts would be paid off under one condition. He would marry Caroline of Brunswick, his cousin. The king would gain allies in Europe and Parliament would be happy to increase his allowance if he married a suitable princess. George relented, and the pair were engaged before meeting. He would end his relationship with Maria, but they would rekindle their relationship at various points throughout their lives. When the new couple did meet, the pair could not have been less impressed with what they found. Caroline had been described as coarse, vulgar, ill-educated, and unwashed. When George met her, his first words were to his courtier, I am not well, pray, get me a glass of brandy. Caroline in turn 
found George to be stout and not handsome like his portrait. George got rotten drunk at the wedding. During the service, he was seen by many ogling his latest mistress, Lady Jersey. He spent the night in a drunken stupor and slept on the floor with his head in the fireplace. Not long after the wedding, Caroline became pregnant. George claimed that he required copious amounts of alcohol to conquer my person and overcome the disgust of her person. They were completely ill-suited for one another. George once harangued, If you wish for more of my company, it must strike you that the natural mode of obtaining it is to make my own house not obnoxious to me. With George's part of the bargain fulfilled, and a legitimate heir on its way, the pair had little reason to pretend to be interested in one another. Three days after the birth of their daughter Charlotte, George bequeathed everything he owned to Maria Fitzherbert. He bequeathed for Jezebel, as he called his wife, one shilling. After the breakdown of their marriage, Caroline became a sight on the social scene, regularly attending dinner parties and closeting young men. After partying across Europe in the vein of their estranged husband, she settled in Italy. This, however, was not the last Britain would see of Caroline. By 1810, the king's condition deteriorated once more. Once more, he was not fit to rule. In February 1811, George was sworn in as regent. Those who were not fans of George relented. Charles Fox was dead. Perhaps a prince would mature into the role. A year later, with the king's condition not improving, the regent was given full prerogative and acted as a full monarch. By this point, he was 48. He put on great banquets to celebrate his new power. Another reason George was able to soothe concerns of those opposing him was that he had become more conservative with age. He supported the war against France, firmly backing the government. He now believed his old camp of Whigs were dangerous. Those promises he had made to them for decades were not to be fulfilled, and George kept most of his father's Tory ministers. He also shared his father's view that Catholic emancipation would violate his royal oath, an issue which would emerge later in his rule. His ten years as regent coincided with the culmination of the conflict with Napoleon. He associated himself with military success. Within a year of becoming regent, he made himself a field marshal. His uniform was ridiculous. It was adorned with gold embroidery, weighing 200 pounds. When news of victory at Waterloo filtered through, he was at a societal ball, a reflection of the changing nature of British royalty. What George did do was spearhead the Regency era, an era not only characterised by his own Regency, but one of refinement, culture, mass poverty, economic strife and the yearning for true democracy. Before George, Hanoverians had been viewed as Philistines. George led a new alternative image of royalty. Fashion moved with him. Wigs were gone, trousers replaced breeches, and buttons became trendy. In fact, the button industry took a significant blow upon George's death. He also popularised dark colours to make him look slimmer, high collars to hide his double chin, 
When sober, he was funny, witty, with a special talent for mimicry. According to contemporaries, he could have been a successful comic actor. He was also perhaps the most intelligent Hanoverian, and was known to quote Homer and Virgil at parties. He was known as an excellent gregarious host. He could remove bad impressions and worse tendencies for special occasions, and behave with superb royal dignity. Another significant symbol of the Regency era was architecture. George, with John Nash, designed Regent's Park, rebuilt Buckingham Palace, the palace we know today. Along with his father, George, he also renovated and rebuilt Windsor Castle with Baroque, Gothic and Rococo furnishings. Perhaps his most iconic project was Brighton Pavilion, a symbol of a high sense of taste. It mixes Regency grandeur with Indian architecture and Chinese-inspired interiors. The building was fit with gas lighting and central heating. George's love of Brighton and seaside resorts, one of the few pleasures he shared of his father, transformed what was a small town of 3,500 in 1785 to a bustling resort of 40,000 in 1820, with Brighton Pavilion the beacon. The Times described it as a masterpiece of malice. Indeed, not everyone was thrilled with George's architectural excesses. He received huge criticism from public and parliament for overspending and indecision on building projects. Nevertheless, George continued to enjoy his extravagant hobbies he acquired a massive art collection containing Rembrandts and Rubens. He insisted on a complete collection of Jane Austen's novels in every one of his residences. He sang alongside Rossini at Brighton Pavilion and played alongside Joseph Haydn. He sponsored the Royal Society of Literature for impoverished writers and donated his father's gargantuan library to the British Museum. He also kept a menagerie that reflected British imperialism. He had giraffes, ostriches, zebras, leopards, and even kangaroos. When he became regent, he naturally received even more press attention. Cartoonists had a field day with his personal life, his declining physique, and his extravagance. Yet for all the elegance and grandeur of the regency era, the press would be unwilling to ignore the economic and political problems that was slowly gripping the country. The end of the Napoleonic Wars brought national jubilation, but it also brought 400,000 disbanded soldiers into the labour market, bringing unemployment up and forcing wages down. Government spending fell and recession set in. This led to the passing of the Corn Laws 
1815. This imposed a tariff on overseas wheat in order to favour and sustain domestic farm incomes. It increased the power and profit of landowners while increasing the price of food and the cost of living. It had a knock-on effect on other sectors when disposable income plunged. When the Luddite movement, a radical faction set on destroying the textile industry, instigated region-wide rebellions, a febrile atmosphere permeated across the country, with unrest in Manchester, Glasgow and Leeds. Threats were made to the King's life. In 1819, orator Henry Hunt took to a stage at St Peter's Field in Manchester where he addressed 80,000 people on the issue of true parliamentary representation. At the time, the British parliamentary system was based on its old medieval kingdom. Parliamentary lines were rarely redrawn, so a county like Lancashire, despite its swollen population of one million, had just two representatives in Parliament, as it was based on its very limited rural medieval representation. Political power was in the hands of rural landowners. An army and an establishment, still shaken by the Saint-Culotte, the aggrieved common people whose riots triggered the French Revolution, the cavalry was sent in to St. Peter's Field. The panicked troops mowed down protesters. At least 11 were killed and 600 injured, including women and children. The event was later sarcastically named Peterloo, a slightly less distinguished episode in the careers of the same soldiers who had defeated Napoleon four years prior. It was a national scandal, a dark moment in British history, yet one that was perhaps crucial in the road to full democracy. Despite the negative press, the government wanted to prevent further disturbances embarrassing them. Prime Minister Lord Liverpool passed six acts restricting freedom of speech, publication and assembly. Promoting reform was now seen as treasonous. Maximum sentences for blasphemous or seditious libels were increased to 14 years transportation. Newspaper officers were raided and journalists were arrested. Tensions increased further in February 1820 when the Cato Street conspiracy unravelled revealing assassination attempts on members of the cabinet, including Lord Liverpool. In 1821, the radical newspaper, the Manchester Observer, ceased operations. It had been defeated by repeated prosecutions for libel. This didn't signal the defeat of proposed reform. The void was filled by the Manchester Guardian, later the Guardian. He would continue to champion the same reform. On the 29th of January 1820, the beleaguered, isolated King George III finally died at the age of 81. He hadn't ruled since 1810, but had remained king. The regions became George IV. At 57, he'd spent the longest period in history as heir apparent. His accession was not met with enthusiasm. Former Prime Minister Henry Addington reportedly said, how much better is it to weep over departed excellence in the nearest and dearest of all connections than to be harassed by living profligacy. The coronation was set for the 19th of July 1821, 
A ceremony was planned to match the ostentatious and lavish tastes of the king. It would be the most extravagant coronation of all time. Yet a character from George's past would ensure that it would not go without a hitch. It was perhaps quite fitting. On the 16th of July, three days before the coronation, the king received a letter informing him that the queen would be attending the coronation and would be needed to be escorted to her rightful seat. George had anticipated this. He had tried to rid himself of the queen once and for all, offering her £50,000 to never return to England. He also introduced the Bill of Pains and Penalties with the aim of dissolving his marriage, with the admission of adultery by one of the partners being necessary to dissolve the marriage. And with neither of them willing to do so, Caroline was effectively put on trial. The trial called upon witnesses, some of Caroline's former lovers, recounting lurid details of dalliances. The trial became a sensation in the press. Salacious gossip gripped the nation. Caroline's struggle to claim her rights as queen against a ruthless establishment meant her cause was taken up by the radicals and used Caroline as a symbol of wronged womanhood. Such slogans spread, Queen forever, King in the river. The sheer hypocrisy of George IV effectively putting his wife on trial for adultery did not go unnoticed. The bill passed with a slim majority of nine. Liverpool, however, decided to withdraw the bill with such a close vote and public tensions so high. Crowds in London celebrated withdrawal like a victory. Government building windows were smashed. Pro-government newspaper buildings were vandalised. When Caroline attended the service of thanksgiving at St Paul's Cathedral, she was met by hundreds of thousands of people who had turned out to see her. Although her marriage was not dissolved, she was still banned from the coronation, and she was still adamant she would ignore the order to stay away. The budget for the coronation was £240,000, or £19 million by today's standards, considerably more than the budget for his father's coronation. George was dressed in velvet robes, gold-lined with ermine. 12,000 jewels were set into his crown. His gold-bordered crimson velvet train was so long and heavy it required nine pages to carry it. His garb was incredibly hot in the midsummer sun. In fact, he needed smelling salts during the ceremony to avoid fainting. The Archbishop of Canterbury's sermon was topical. He talked about the sovereign's duty to protect his people from contagion of vice and irreligion. George was seen nodding, winking, sighing and making eyes at his newest mistress, Lady Conningham. Then the Queen appeared. She was refused entrance. Bayonets were held to her chin as she looked to navigate her way through the guards. The Abbey was also guarded by American boxers who doubled up as heavies and celebrities. The doors were then slammed on the Queen. Her behaviour was seen as undignified and she lost support. She was even jeered as she rode away defeated in her carriage. The coronation had received public acclamation 
for its ceremony and pomp. The coronation banquet was perhaps the most obscene in British history. The grand table was lit by 28 chandeliers with 60 lights each. On the table was laying 7,500 pounds of beef, 7,000 pounds of veal, 160 geese, 1,500 chickens, 8,500 pounds of eggs for just over 300 guests. The female guests were only able to watch from the gallery and couldn't leave until George had finished. It was seen as the last of the great medieval coronation banquets. George's support had grown somewhat amidst the countless tales of his wife's infidelities. There was some public sympathy. The day after the coronation, the Queen fell ill. Three weeks later she died, perhaps of cancer or an internal obstruction. But of course rumours spread that the timing suggested she was poisoned. George had had many illegitimate children by the time of his death. He had 56 illegitimate grandchildren, yet he'd only had one legitimate child with the Queen, Princess Charlotte. Three years prior to his coronation, Charlotte died during childbirth. The doctor had tried using forceps, a new invention. The baby was stillborn. The public reaction was harsh. George mourned for three months, but absolved the doctor of all blame. The doctor later committed suicide. This meant that George's heir was now his younger brother, Prince Frederick. After his coronation, George toured his dominions. This was a big deal. His father never left the south of England, and the other Georgians were much more interested in Hanover. He became the first monarch to pay a state visit to Ireland since Richard II. When he entered Dublin, he wore a hat with a big bunch of shamrock protruding from it to adulation. It would epitomise the entire trip. The gregarious, personally friendly monarch enamoured himself well with the Irish people. One old Irishman said of him, I was a rebel to the old King George, but by God I would die a thousand deaths for his son. George gave a speech to the exalted crowns. Rank Honour and station are nothing, but to feel that I live in the heart of my Irish subjects is to me the most exalted happiness. I assure you, my dear friends, I have an Irish heart, and this night shall be proof of my affection, with bumpers of whiskey punch. Whiskey was handed out to all. Daniel O'Connell, an Irish leader in the fight for Catholic emancipation, saw promise in George. He presented him with a crown of laurel leaves. He even wanted to use taxpayers' money to build George a palace in Ireland. The issue of Catholic emancipation would become incredibly tense and problematic for the British government. 
later in the 1820s. Such arguments would be linked to home rule. George would not take advantage of his successful trip to appease the Irish. It was a missed opportunity for lasting peace and understanding. Swift reform may well have prevented long-term troubles that followed. George also visited Wales. Despite being Prince of Wales for 50 years, this was his only trip. He then visited Scotland and was received warmly, the first monarch since Charles II in 1651. He wore traditional dress, Stuart Tartan, and became engrossed by Scottish culture, food and games. On a miserable wet day during the Royal Mile Parade, he proclaimed, Good God, what a fine sight, and to find it in my own dominions. The people are as beautiful and as extraordinary as the scene. Rain? I feel no rain. During the final banquet, he delivered a toast to the clans of chieftains of Scotland, the same clans that had been ripped of their identity and heritage after Culloden less than 80 years before. The ban on Tartan was effectively lifted. As George had warned Tartan, it quickly became a fashion symbol after its suppression and the visit inspired future royal visits. This vibrant convivial king lasted two years. He was an old debilitated king before the age of 60. He was obese and took large doses of laudanum. In Dublin, he had taken ill with an attack on the bowels. He also badly twisted his knee while riding, a particularly difficult injury for someone of his size. As he grew exponentially, he became more self-conscious. The press certainly didn't help. George became more and more reclusive. He made no public appearances in London after 1823, restricting activities to ceremonial duties, further womanising and dangerous binges of food and alcohol. Though George did retain a deep interest in various different projects and causes. George was known to have a very kind streak. He had a very classless attitude. He had many friendships with people from different walks of life, including his servants and especially his kitchen staff, to whom he gave generous pensions. He even threw dinner parties for his servants and would join them. He also visited working-class pubs in London. When he was arrested with Charles Fox as Prince of Wales, he was delighted not to receive special treatment. He would often plead with the Home Secretary Robert Peel to offer clemency for prisoners on death row, sometimes waking Peel up in the middle of the night. Peel himself reduced the number of crimes meriting capital punishment and with inspiration from Elizabeth Fry, passed the Jails Act, mandating segregated prisons and female wardens to protect women prisoners from sexual exploitation. He then formed the Metropolitan Police in 1829. Constables were nicknamed Bobbies and Peelers after him. It was the first organised police force, replacing locally maintained systems of voluntary constables and watchmen now not sufficient for London's exponential expansion. It wasn't just London that was expanding. Britain's population had grown by 11 million in just 25 years. 
the previous 700 years had seen an increase of just 7 million. Industrial cities in Manchester, Birmingham and Sheffield now dwarfed cathedral towns. The grey, dirty behemoths, wreathed in smoke, scarred the skylines. In 1825, the first steam locomotives rattled along from Stockton to Darlington, connecting collieries. They would soon be rapidly expanding across the country. A new, modern Britain was forming. Throughout his rule, George had relied upon the stable, sensible, conservative rule of Lord Liverpool. When he died in 1827, political instability followed. Liverpool was followed by George Canning, who also died within a year. Finally, Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, became Britain's first Irish-born Prime Minister in January 1828. While previously against Irish emancipation, he soon realised it was necessary and it was dangerous to ignore the issue. George refused. George was politically weak and largely at the will of resolute politicians. Wellington would humour the monarch. When George made wild claims about being personally involved in the cavalry charge at the Battle of Waterloo, a battle that Wellington knew all too well, he would tactfully reply, So you have told me, sir, but I did not witness this marvellous charge. People were unsure whether George was mocking the Duke or was losing his mental capacity like his father had. Nevertheless, he was monarch and royal assent was needed for emancipation. In Ireland, discontent was growing, with bad harvests causing serious economic strife. Following a determined campaign from Daniel McConnell, who had won a seat in County Clare but was unable to take it as a Catholic, Wellington recognised that failure to allow Catholics to sit may trigger something more disastrous for Britain, like an irresistible campaign for independence. This could be a compromise. Eventually, George relented and signed the Catholic Relief Bill in March, allowing Catholics to sit in Parliament. Catholic emancipation would not put an end to Irish overtures for independence. It created a block of Irish Catholics at Westminster, committed to self-rule. In his final months, George was very ill. He was heavily drugged up with laudanum, dulling him of what little sense remained. He rarely left Windsor Castle, surrounded by elderly mistresses and doctors who were at a loss at preventing his gluttony. The Duke of Wellington made a record of one of the King's meals in his final months. He had a beef and pigeon pie, a bottle of Moselle wine, a glass of champagne, two glasses of pork and a glass of brandy, all for breakfast. His corset waistline was 50 inches. He weighed 22 stone and his stomach reached his knees. So embarrassed by his body, when travelling in Windsor Park, grooms would ride ahead to disperse the public so he wouldn't be seen. He suffered from gout, rheumatism, was blind in one eye and suffered from severe spasms of breathlessness. On the 26th of June, 1830, he woke up with a burst blood vessel. He shouted, Good God, what is this? Is this death? And with this he died. He was 67. His post-mortem revealed arteriosclerosis, 
and a bladder tumour. With the earlier death of his brother Frederick, the crown would pass to his younger brother, 64-year-old William. He left instructions for a picture of his beloved wife Maria Fitzherbert to be placed around his neck upon his heart. He was buried at Windsor Castle. Perhaps no monarch had been less popular than George on the eve of his death. At times obituary wrote, never was an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. Yet he was perhaps more weak and vacillating than he was vicious. He was fraught and hugely irresponsible, but his deception came from laziness rather than for nefarious gain. His legacy in the Regency era, with his art, fashion and architecture, is clearer to see than most of his predecessors and successors. The Duke of Wellington perhaps described him best. The most extraordinary compound of talent, wit, buffoonery, obstinacy and good feeling. In short, a medley of opposite qualities, with a great preponderance of good than I ever saw in any character in my life. Though the view of a vast majority of his contemporaries is hard to ignore, he was the last of a line of what public views as ignominious Georges. The aptly named Walter Savage Lander wrote this tribute. I sing the Georges fall, for providence could stand no more. Some say that for the worst of all was George the first. But yet, some tis reckoned that worse still was George the second. And what mortal man ever heard any good of George the third? When George the fourth from earth descended, thank God the line of George was ended. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for William the fourth. You can send any questions or comments in to the Kings and Queens podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook at the Kings and Queens podcast, Twitter, Kings Queens pod, Instagram, Kings Queens podcast. Send in any questions or comments you've got. And thanks again for listening. See you next time.